1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. We interview philosophers about their new books, covering a wide range of areas, including ethics, metaphysics, philosophy of mind, political philosophy, aesthetics, and many more. Today's interview is with Tad Zawitsky, associate professor of philosophy and co-director of the Mind-Brain Evolution Cluster at the George Washington University. We'll be talking about his new book, Mind Shaping, a New Framework for Understanding Human Social Cognition, which is just out from the MIT Press. Social cognition involves a small bundle of cognitive capacities and behaviors that enable us to communicate and get along with each other, a bundle that we have and even our closest primate cousins don't, at least not to the same level of sophistication. Pervasive collaboration, language, mind reading, and what Zawitski calls mind shaping, which in turn includes our capacities and dispositions to imitate, to be natural learners, and to conform to and enforce social norms. Most researchers hold that mind reading, our theory of mind, is the linchpin of the rest, our ability to ascribe one another mental states with propositional content is necessary for sophisticated language use and for mind shaping. Zuwitsky argues, in contrast, that what's fundamental in social cognition is the mind shaping capacity, that this ability to homogenize our minds, as he puts it, makes sophisticated mind reading and language possible. On his view, for example, language didn't evolve so that we could express thought it evolved so that we could express our commitment to cooperative behavior. Zawitski's innovative approach centers on reinterpreting and extending Daniel Dennett's intentional stance so that it takes on a role in the cognitive development of the species and in an individuals' development of their other social cognitive capacities. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Tad. Hello. Hi, welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm very excited to be talking about your new book, um, uh, Mind Shaping, a New Framework for Understanding Human Social Cognition, which is just out from uh, MIT. Um, before we get into the details of the interview, um, I always like to start with a little bit of background about uh, about you and about the project. Um, so, how, how did you come to philosophy in general, and how did you get interested in the topic of the book and, and come to write the book?
0: Uh, well, I was probably interested in philosophy since I was a teenager, but didn't quite know what it was till I went to college. Um, and then when I took a few classes, I decided to major in it. Um, and then uh, I had a professor there who was kind of a mentor. To me um, and got me interested in philosophy of cognitive science specifically. We even published a paper together way back then, and afterwards I got a bunch of opportunities to do graduate work, um, first at the University of Sussex in their master's program in COGS. I wanted to go there because Andy Clark was there, and then when I got there, Andy Clark was moving to Washington University Mm -hmm. for the new PNP program, so I just kind of followed him. St. Louis uh, and enrolled in the PNP program. Uh, So I had been interested in issues having to do with uh, the mind and empirical studies of the mind and their philosophical implications and assumptions for a very long time. Um, I think I was always very interested sort of the the, uh, problem that most motivated me was always how to how our everyday understanding of the mind and, and human beings um, relates to the scientific understanding. So issues like eliminativism and so forth. Um, I'm sort of a big fan of Daniel Dennett's work and his attempts to reconcile our uh, common sense self-interpretation with what science is telling us about brains and such. So that was sort of always my motivating factor. And from... Early on, back in my days in my master's degree at Sussex, it had occurred to me that maybe the, the way people conceptualized this problem was wrong, that that our our self-interpretations are not really in the same business as our uh, scientific um, frameworks for understanding uh, human behavior and the, and the brain. Um, and the thought I had was that maybe our self-interpretations play more of a regulative role. So... I've had this thought for, and really now I, uh, you know, it kind of came to fruition in recent years. I wrote this paper called "Mind Shaping" in 2008. It was published in Philosophical Explorations, and I decided to sort of expand on the idea over the uh, following five years, and, and the book is a product of that.
1: So you begin the book um, with with a, a methodological point, right? And it's basically a defense of, of evolutionary psychology, which which has gotten a you know a, a kind of a bad rap as a bunch of just so stories about how we came to be where we are. Um, and you you defend it. I mean, you think it's it's not that that your alternative version or any version actually uh, of. Uh, evolutionary psychological story of of how our social cognitive capacities evolved um it's not just a matter of just so stories um so on your view i mean what what um how how do you defend evolutionary psychology and the, and the, and the approach that, that you take to explaining social cognition
0: yeah well I, don't, I think it's highly problematic, I agree with critics, I just don't think we have a choice or an option uh, when it comes to thinking about the mind. Uh, we have no choice but to think about how it evolved. And the reason is that I think that in cognitive science um, you have to begin with or at least be guided by functional hypotheses, hypotheses about what parts of the brain are for, what they're doing for us. Um, this is an assumption shared by evolutionary psychologists as well as people who are critical of evolutionary psychology all the way back to David Marr's book Vision, he outlined a, a kind of three uh, step methodology in uh, explaining a cognitive capacity and the first step is getting clear on what the capacity is doing, what it's there for um, and I think if you don't look for a uh, biological Um, approach to that question, you're stuck with just intuitions or a priori assumptions. So my thinking here is inspired by an old paper by um, uh, Patricia Churchland, uh, V.S. Ramachandran, and Terry Sanowski called A Critique of Pure Vision, where they're actually criticizing Mars' approach. And they argue that the problem with Mars' approach is he takes this a priori um, uh, stance towards figuring out what vision is for.
1: Mm-hmm. And if
0: we think about it a priori, we think, well, vision is for getting around the environment, getting I- information um, through visual properties of the environment, and it requires us to construct a detailed three-dimensional model of the environment. That's the goal of vision. And what uh, S- Churchill and and Ramachandran argue is if you take an evolutionary perspective, you're not necessarily wedded to that. You can, see, if you see vision as the product product of a long process of evolution, you could see that primitive vision might have not required um, a, a a detailed three-dimensional model of the environment, um, and that the, the sort of three-dimensional model was sort of a late add-on, which which wasn't wasn't essential to guiding action. And I want to do something similar for social cognition. I think if we look at Social cognition a priori—it seems like we can't do anything adaptive socially. We can't cooperate. We can't communicate um, unless we first get accurate pictures of each other's minds. Unless we can first mind read accurately, and so a priori, it seems like mind reading will be the most important component of human social cognition. And so, propositional attitude attribution in particular uh, will will be sort of fundamental. But I think if we take an evolutionary perspective, as with you know the Ramachandran-Sanowski-Churchland argument, we can look at social cognition in a completely different way and see that much more primitive uh, mechanisms may have played a more important role in evolution and hence may actually still play a more important role. So th- that's the motivation. I, I want um, our speculation about um, what social cognition is for to be constrained by empirical matters, like what it evolved to do. But I grant it's really difficult to to get um, feasible empirical constraints here. I mean, we don't have time machines. We can't really go back in time. Um, And, you know, our speculations there will always be problematic due to the dearth of evidence, of empirical evidence. But I still think they're better. There's more constraints there than just a priori speculation. Um, and some, I go in the book through some kinds of evidence uh, that I think are relevant. For example, uh, we have fossils that tell us roughly when our skulls started expanding um, at a rapid rate. Um, there's evidence that raises all sorts of interesting issues, like how do you uh, birth a, a child if you're a, a biped and you have a narrow pelvis? How do you birth a child with a huge head? Well, one thing you do is you, you birth children which is what humans do with partially collapsed skulls and undeveloped brains. And what can we infer from that? Well, that a lot more brain development happens after birth in humans and in our ancestors than does in other species. And I think this has some really important implications for social cognition. So that's an example of how a sort of um, rigorous empirical data could constrain our hypotheses about what social cognition is for. Um, basically, the framework I take is there's got to be some fact of the matter as to why um, the human, so- the distinctively human sociocognitive capacities, mind and such, caught on, on a- at a particular point in history and not earlier. And there's got to be a fact of the matter as to why they've been maintained in human populations and how they've been maintained up to the present day in human populations. Now, these are facts about, about biology, and, of course, it's hard to, to um, ascertain what these facts are, given that the evidence is noisy, but the facts are there, and they play an important role, I think, in constraining um, other projects in cognitive science and understanding what parts of the brain are for, for example. Um, and so, it's worth finding what evidence there is to try and establish these facts.
1: So, so um, when you talk about social cognition, before we get into your particular, um, your your particular particular hierarchy or or view of of how it evolved, Um, maybe you could say a word about uh, what social cognition is generally thought to consist of, you know, what the elements of of this, what you call the social cognitive syndrome are.
0: Yeah, well, the social cognitive syndrome involves more than just social cognition. Uh, It involves various social capacities. So. What I mean by the human sociocognitive syndrome is those social capacities which appear to distinguish our species from others. So other species have plenty of sociocognitive capacities, and we share plenty of sociocognitive capacities with other species. But I think there are four which are, there's a lot of consensus are pretty distinctive of human beings. So one is and the one that has traditionally been taken to be the central one is sophisticated mind reading. And what I mean by this is the attribution of full blown propositional attitudes like belief and desire as such. Um, I think we share a lot of more rudimentary forms of attribution, psychological attributions, with other um, species, like we can track behavioral patterns and so forth, uh, maybe keep track of emotions. But attributing beliefs and desires, especially beliefs, um, there's a lot of consensus that only humans do that. Another feature which is distinctive of of human socio capacities, social capacities, is what I call sophisticated mind shaping. And there are a lot of examples, but we're much better at imitating the fine grained behavioral um, uh, properties of other of our conspecifics than even. Um, uh, um, the great apes are even chimpanzees or, orang- or orangutans. Another thing we're good at is we're much more better at pedagogy, at teaching offspring um, things. Another thing we're, we are good at is norm enforcement. So we, we're good at making each other um, uh, um, uh, match certain regulative or normative ideals. And of course, the more, most sophisticated forms of mind shaping um, involve. Of kind of abstract models that we have in, in myths and other language-based um, uh, forms, like the law, where we try to get get people to match certain abstract models. So that's something also that's distinctive of human social capacities. Another thing that that is distinctive is cooperation. There are rudimentary forms of cooperation in other primate species, but nothing approaches the sort of pervasiveness um, and importance of cooperation uh... that we see in human populations and finally there's human language which on a number of um, levels is very different from animal communication it's structurally very complex it's got recursive structure and it's semantically very flexible we could use language to talk about anything um, which uh... Is not the case for uh... human animal communication systems so the human socio-cognitive syndrome Um, uh, consists of these four distinctive capacities, sophisticated mind reading, sophisticated mind shaping, uh, distinctively human language, and the pervasive cooperation that you see in human populations. And what I want to say is that I want to investigate how these four capacities are related to each other, both, both now and in evolution. And I think the standard view is that sophisticated mind reading was the most important step, that before we could attribute Uh, full-blown propositional attitudes to each other, beliefs and desires, we couldn't really engage in sophisticated mind-shaping, pervasive cooperation, and sophisticated language. And I want to sort of turn that on its head. I want to say that actually sophisticated mind-shaping was really much more important in that, and we couldn't really attribute propositional attitudes until we already had uh, sophisticated mind-shaping, Widespread cooperation and sophisticated language on the scene.
1: So, could you could you maybe go a bit into uh, what mind shaping is? And that's that's not a, a, a phrase that uh, that is already kind of uh, in widespread use. So, uh, and in your your second chapter, you you go into details what you mean by that. So maybe you could explain. Uh, you describe it as uh, mind shaping as getting a target mind to match a model. So um, maybe you could uh, explain us, explain to us what you mean by mind shaping.
0: Yeah, um, I I use the term because I want to contrast it with mind reading. So that's sort of a, a term of art that's been around for several decades now. Stitch and uh, Nichols and Stitch have that book Mind Reading, and I wanted to say actually social cognition is more about mind shaping than mind reading. Uh, So that's part of the reason I I chose the term. And the term I get from a paper by Matteo Mameli from 2001 in Biology and Philosophy, where he argued that a lot of our interpretive practices, attribution of beliefs and desires, actually function to shape minds more than to read them. So we have these expectations about how people will act based on our attributions of mental states, and then people kind of um, uh, work to confirm those expectations, so they, they, these expectations shape their behavior as much as help us predict it. Um, so that's what I was inspired by. Um, but I think that there's a, a variety of um, practices and mechanisms, all that count as mind shaping. And what they all have in common is there is some mind being shaped, that's the target, and it's being shaped to resemble or somehow match a model. And a model can be the behavior of an actual individual. So in imitation, you're trying to imitate someone. The model is the behavior of the person you're trying to imitate. Um, But sometimes the model, especially in sophisticated forms of distinctively human mind shaping, the model is something more abstract. So, for example, it's a fictional character, some kind of mythical or religious figure. Uh, We read stories about them and we try to emulate them. Um, so, you know, the famous uh, slogan that you see on bumpers, Bumpers. Uh, what would Jesus do there? So there you're, you're imitating not an actual concrete individual that you have experience of, but uh, an abstract model. So all of these are cases of mind shaping, and there are a variety of mechanisms that, um, that perform this basic function of trying to get a target mind to resemble in certain respects some kind of model. Now, what matters is that the behavior is matched, but you can't really get a a match in behavioral dispositions unless you've shaped the mind in some way. Now, these mechanisms needn't needn't involve the conceptualization of a mind. That's, That's very important. So you can have a mechanism which isn't kind of thinking of itself as shaping a mind. It doesn't have any representations of minds as such, but as a matter of fact, as as an effect of its activity, a mind gets shaped, because what the mechanism is aiming to do is to match a behavioral disposition to the behavior of some model, and the only way that could be done is by, as a matter of fact, shaping the mind of the target such that it's disposed issue in that kind of behavior
1: although we're we're doing this without actually trying to the goal is not to shape the mind the goal is to shape the behavior or the behavioral dispositions
0: right but i, I don't think you can shape a behavioral disposition um without shaping a mind right? uh, so yeah i mean the, the problem here i think is uh when you you're, you're the goals here are understood teleofunctionally, mm-hmm. like um, Alan, Alan Millican say. And so they're non-intentional with an S. So you can shape a mind without thinking of yourself as shaping a mind, right? It, you can have the function of shaping a mind if, you know, by shaping a behavioral disposition, you also happen to be shaping a mind. What matters is what the thing was selected for in evolution. So... I guess what mattered in evolution was that the behavior matched. But as a matter of fact, the only way in evolution you could have gotten the, sh- the behavior to match is by actually shaping the mind, whether or not it was conceived of that way.
1: Okay, so um, you, you criticize, I mean, this is, your, your, your main target is uh, the idea that mind reading, as you put it, sophisticated mind reading is the, is the linchpin um, and you're replacing that with uh, with mind shaping as the linchpin. Um, so, what what what's the main problem as you see it with the mind reading first view?
0: Yeah. Um, well, again, what I mean by sophisticated mind reading is what's distinctive of human beings, and I think um, there I'm focused on the attribution of propositional attitudes as such, so beliefs and desires. Um, I think especially beliefs I think that's something that we can do and other animals can do there's a lot of social socio cognitive capacities that we use in everyday life without even thinking about it, which I think say chimpanzees also have so that's not what i 'm trying to explain now the idea that we have we had to attribute beliefs and desires as such uh, before we can do anything else, I think is problematic because of what uh, people like Jose Luis Bermudez and Adam Morton have called the holism problem. So there's not a simple link between belief and behavior. Your whether you when you believe X, it'll only uh, yield a certain behavior if you also believe and desire a bunch of other things. Um, and so it's hard to see how in dynamic sort of evolutionary plausible social contexts, attributing mental states that have such a tenuous connection to behavior could have had a a predictive uh, dividend. How could it have helped me predict behavior better than I could already predict behavior if attributing a belief doesn't directly lead to any particular behavior? Mm -hmm. Uh, so, So that's the general problem. And the idea I have is that it's only once you've got fairly sophisticated mind-shaping practices of the kind that you don't see in other in other animals, when people are shaped to have similar beliefs in similar contexts and to act in similar ways when they have similar beliefs, that attributing beliefs could actually help. Before, um, before such mechanisms, before such shaping mechanisms, there's really no reason to believe that people would be sufficiently alike to um, be predictable, given a certain belief attribution, so that's basic. The basic argument,
1: and um, you also have a, a basic criticism of the the idea that language um, uh, also requires this sophisticated uh, mind reading first view. I mean, that's and that's that's a pretty well entrenched idea, right? That um, there's a particular Gricean picture of, of language in which it involves uh, attributing all kinds of, in, you know, communicative intentions to each other. Um, and, of course, if, if mind reading uh, is, uh, you know, comes after the mind shaping, uh, then language is also going to be after. And, of course, the Gricean picture is just going to kind of fall apart. Um, so could you, could you explain a bit your, your, uh, your discomfort with, with that picture of, of the relation between, well, those three elements, I suppose, language, uh, mind reading, and then your alternative mind shaping first?
0: Yeah, this was uh, probably the most challenging and uh, part of the book for me, because you're right, it's a very entrenched view. Um, there's sort of two reasons why I targeted the Graysian picture as it's classically understood – One was a sort of reason internal to my project. I I wanted to argue that um, you needed language on the scene before you could have sophisticated mind reading, before you get a propositional attitude attribution. And a lot of people have made this claim. Um, Andy Clark, my advisor, makes a claim along these lines in being there. More recently, uh, Daniel Kuto in his book, Folk Psychological Narratives, defends a claim along these lines. So there, there are some precedents where people are challenging the Gricean picture. Um, And for me, I think, ultimately, you don't really need propositional attitude attribution as such to predict behavior. There are all sorts of lower-level mechanisms which allow us to do that. And so the question becomes, why do we need propositional attitude attribution? And I'm going to argue it's only once you have language in which you make commitments to certain um, uh, statements, to certain claims, that you need a practice of propositional attitude attribution. But that requires... That means that language has to be on the scene prior to um, to full-blown propositional attitude attribution. So that's the motivation from within my project. The external motivation is just that I think it's highly implausible that, um, say, in conversation, like the conversation we're having right now, we're interpreting each other, and it just seems highly implausible that th- this, this seamless, dynamic give-and-take that we're having is involves... Um, theoretical uh, leaps and hypotheses about the causes, the mental causes of what you're saying, um, which is one way of reading the Gricean picture. I just think that language use and conversation is just too dynamic, too seamless, and too reliable, um, happens too quickly for the interpretive component of it to be conceptualized as the attribution of hidden mental causes with tenuous connections to behavior um, and, and content, which is what propositional attitudes are. So, what I argue is now I think the reason Griceanism has been so plausible is because people aren't precise enough about what they mean by propositional attitude attribution. Um, Ian Apperly makes this point in his wonderful recent book called Mind Readers, 2011, where he kind of distinguishes between the normative account of propositional attitude attribution, which is what, what you know, a philosopher might say is involved in attributing a belief. And this requires some pretty sophisticated uh, cognitive abilities. You have to, A belief is something which is an unobservable state. Because of holism, it has this tenuous connection to behavior. It's, it's got to be an internal, unobservable cause that has propositional content. There has to be a, a mode of presentation so that two different individuals could represent the same state of affairs in different ways. So there's all these sophisticated abilities and knowledge you need to attribute a belief. And it's really a difficult, I mean, as, as a psychologist will, will acknowledge, it's really difficult based on the kind of fragmentary behavioral evidence that we have in everyday life when we're having a conversation to make these inferences to these hidden complex mental states. It seems really difficult to do that. So how do you explain the seamless uh, dynamics of, of, of conversation? Well, in my view, a lot of people who are attracted to Griceanism are actually, when they, when they say we're attributing beliefs, are actually thinking of something much simpler. And what I'm thinking, uh, what I like to Call it is. I like to assimilate that to Dennett's notion of an intentional stance. But I think um, adopting the intentional stance towards um, a behavior, uh, be it linguistic or non-linguistic, is a much more rudimentary capacity. You're not um, hypothesizing a hidden mental state. What you're doing is you're trying to rationalize the behavior. You're looking for an obvious goal that will make the behavior seem rational. Um, relative to the context that, that behavior in, in which it's taking place. And I want to argue that that's much more computationally tractable. That's probably what's going on when we interpret each other in, in conversation. But it, that doesn't count as full-blown propositional attitude attribution. It's not a, an ability that's different in kind from what chimpanzees do. Chimpanzees can adopt more rudimentary versions of the intentional stance. What they can't do is pause it hidden, causally potent mental states um, with problematic, tenuous connections to behavior and propositional content. And and I don't think we need to do that when we're interpreting each other in conversation.
1: Well, I'm glad you you brought up the the intentional stance, because um, that does seem to play a very large role, I mean, sort of throughout the book. It seems, you know, driven by Basically, applying the intentional stance uh, or an, an intentional stance-like uh, capacity or framework, um, where otherwise we would we might posit something much more, as you put it, full-blown or sophisticated. Um, and so so maybe you could say something about how you understand the intentional stance and its role in your kind of overall picture because the the intentional stance is is you know from dennett and it's it's generally seen as you know ascribing uh uh beliefs and desires but uh as you put it and as i put it you know could it's more like belief star or desire star it's, it's something that a uh um you know, a lectern that is just there can have beliefs and desires in the sense of the intentional stance. Um, So the intentional stance itself is a a theoretical construct, plays an important role in your theory. It's supposed to be far more primitive, at at least, you know, in theory, um, than the things it's supposed to explain. Um, So maybe you could expand a bit more on uh, how you take the, what you understand the intentional stance to be and its role in your overall theory.
0: Certainly, yes. I mean, it's very important. And, you know, um, again, it's probably my favorite philosopher. So I'm, I'm very inspired by his work. And I think I see this book as a, as a, um, Um, very compatible with what he says, but it's also parts of it are incompatible because he says many different things about the intentional stance, and sometimes he proposes it as an analysis of our full-blown concepts of belief and desire, and I I think it isn't. It's not, that's not a good job for it. I think it's better understood as um, a characterization of what we do when we interpret each other in everyday life, Um, but I don't think we attribute beliefs and desires for most Um, everyday interactions, because it's just too difficult. I think the key distinction between attributing full-blown propositional attitudes and the intentional stance has to do with an appearance-reality distinction. So I think uh, when it comes to attributing a propositional attitude, as philosophers have understood it, um, certainly, and a lot of psychologists, you have to think of what you're attributing as the mental reality behind the behavioral appearance. And what that means is you can imagine cases where you have two patterns of behavior which are very similar, even counterfactually similar, that are caused by radically different propositional attitudes. That's what an internal cause is. That's what the mental reality is supposed to be. It's not something that is easily read off of behavior. This is not what the intentional stance is. According to Dennett, If you make an attribution that rationalizes the behavior and enables you to predict the next step, that's all there is to the attribution. There is no deeper fact of the matter. So in a classic discussion, Dennett asks us to uh, imagine an art critic, a famous art critic who has a son who decides to become an artist, and becomes a mediocre artist. And um, the art critic uh, is constantly sort of Praising the art in public, saying how great it is. And Dennett says that that behavior seems compatible with two different attributions. Either the art critic is so blinded by love for his son that he actually thinks, he actually believes the son's art has value, or the art critic doesn't believe the son's art has value, but behaves as though he does out of sort of concern for his son. And Dennett says that We could look at the entire autobiography or the entire biography of this art critic from from, till he dies and find absolutely no evidence that goes one way or another. And he thinks that if that's the case, there is no deeper fact of the matter as to what the art critic really believed. Now, that's that's how the intentional stance works. But I don't think that's what our concepts of, of attributing propositional attitudes amount to. Right, um, And so that's why I think the intentional stance is pitched at the level of behavior. Any attribution which um, makes sense of behavior and enables us to predict future behavior is equally good. So I think there, there is no distinction between the behavioral appearance and the mental reality. All that matters is whatever explains the behavioral appearance. So I don't actually think you need, at the level of the intentional stance, to posit internal, unobservable, causally potent mental states. In fact, Dennett says he doesn't think of the beliefs and desires as causally potent mental states. That's why I use belief star and desire star, as you say. He thinks of them as just these abstract posits which help us track behavioral patterns. And I think this maps very nicely onto a new paradigm in developmental psychology called the teleological stance by the Hungarian developmentalist's um, Georgi Chibra and uh, um, sorry Gergely Chibra and Georgi Gergely, um, they argue that even very young infants assume that agents aim at a goal and pick the most efficient means from the those available in the context to um, accomplish the goal. And uh, I th- and I think that's a very rudimentary um, example of the intentional stance. You're not speculating about the causes of the behavior, the hidden, unobservable states that yield the behavior. You're just saying, look, this behavior can make sense. It's rational. It's an efficient behavior if we assume it's aiming at this end state uh, given these uh, constraints. So I think the teleological stance um, is is sort of a, a rudimentary version of the intentional stance, um, there's evidence that chimpanzees employ a similar heuristic. And then I think this this develops. So what happens in human development is infants assume that all behavior of other agents aims at a goal in the most efficient way, given uh, the constraints of the context. But then sometimes this assumption is confuted. So the, the agent appears to engage in a behavior which is inefficient. And then what, what that does is it drives the infant to notice other factors which might explain, show the behavior to be efficient, even though at first it looked inefficient. So the infant might notice that the agent didn't notice something, wasn't looking at a relevant uh, object in the environment. And so the infant learns, well, if you don't see Uh, the relevant object, you won't engage in what appears to be the most efficient behavior. Um, Relative to what you've seen, your behavior will be efficient, but not relative to the actual facts. And so there you get a more sophisticated version of the intentional stance, but you're still not positing internal, opaque, internal mental states. You're simply looking for factors that are available in the environment that can explain why the behavior really is efficient, even though at first it didn't appear to be efficient. And I think this this is what the intentional stance is, and you can imagine um, infants bootstrapping to ever more sophisticated um, understandings of agency based entirely on this heuristic that um, all agent behavior is always the most efficient uh, behavior uh, for accomplishing some goal, and if it looks inefficient, look for some mitigating factor. Um, so that's the intentional
1: stance. So, but you, um, okay. So one of, one of the, I mean, that, that there were a lot of questions that that you know would naturally be raised uh, in all of what you've just said. But let me just just pick up on this last last issue because um, you you seem to, you know, what's in the back of of your mind and, and mind obviously is is a lot of this literature on. Um, Uh, the false belief task, right, Um, which is usually interpreted uh, as uh, when do infants or young, very young children begin to ascribe full-blown propositional attitudes. Um, And it's, you know, latest it has been pushed back to like six months where, you know, based on looking time behavior. Right, I mean, uh, human infants are are able to or or have some sort of a theory of mind, and you're you're of course just saying wait 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 no that's just it's just reading behavior a la intentional stance, but at the same time um, they are interpreting what's being done in terms of goals, um, and. Uh, that seems to be a fairly sophisticated capacity right there. So I'm just wondering if you could say more about, um, you know, just how primitive the intentional stance is within the picture or the role that you want to give it within your overall theory. Yeah.
0: Oh, it's... uh I don't doubt that it's a sophisticated capacity, but remember, it's, I try to stress this throughout the book that what I'm interested in is explaining distinctively human socio-cognitive capacities, and I think the attribution of goals is um, is not distinctively human. There are a lot of species, not just not even just primate species. I mean, there are bird species that uh, seems to be good evidence they attribute goals. I, I think uh, for me, um, and I think for the intentional stance. To attribute a goal is not necessarily to attribute representation of a goal. So, when you attribute a goal to something, it doesn't mean you're thinking of the thing as having a representation of that goal somewhere in its head that's causing the behavior, the goal-directed behavior. Mm-hmm. The, the the things having the goal can just be a primitive idea you have. It's a primitive relational thing that the goal is that state. Um, which will it'll arrive at in the future, so you envision a a future state, and that thing is related somehow to that state, and that's all you think. You don't think that there has to be some kind of state within the agent which is representing that goal. So that's the idea, and I think it's there in the intentional stance because, after all, Dennett says that things like the process of natural selection, um, plants, even lightning, are often interpreted from intentional stance to have goals, and i don't think when we do that i agree with him that we do that often but i don't think when we do that we think of the lightning or natural selection as having a representation of the goal it just has the goal simpliciter why not um and then when in in human infants so with the false belief tasks the looking time nonverbal false belief tasks i think that is more sophisticated than just attributing goals because there's a sensitivity to the information but again i think you can understand that as information access, where information access is a primitive relationship between the agent you're interpreting and some kind of factor in the environment, and there's no assumption that there's a state within the agent which represents the information. There's just this primitive assumption that if you do not have access to information A, you won't act efficiently towards goal G um, in the way I would say um, because you don't have access to that information. But that doesn't imply that there's a state in your head which represents that information mm-hmm. and causes your actions, right? So that's the sense in which I think the intentional stance is entirely at the level of behavioral appearances and more primitive than full-blown theory of mind, which requires the attribution of internal states that represent goals and information. And uh, and as I say in one of my chapters, I think this whole... Um, bit of language that we've that's that we've gotten to use to describe infant sociocognitive competence. This is all de- derived from, you know, Sellers's myth of Jones and and Gopnik and people who really took seriously the idea that sociocognitive competence is the application of a theory, much like what scientists do. Um, I think that's an unfortunate uh, a set of uh, metaphors that we're using, because if you think of it as a theory of mind, mm. you're thinking that the infant has a concept of a mind, and what is a mind except for some kind of enduring causal nexus that's unobservable, with that goes into these states that, that are unobservable and that cause certain behaviors. And I just think that's it's ridiculous to think that infants have those concepts. You know, six-month-old infants have those concepts. And I think a lot of people who characterize what those infants are doing as theory of mind, they would agree that that's ridiculous. Um, so, uh, So what I'm just warning people about is, you know, be careful in how you describe these capacities. There's no doubt that these are sophisticated capacities. A lot of them are unique to humans. But are they really, do they really involve anything that's like theorizing about hidden causes and a hidden causal nexus that's responsible for behavior? I don't think so. I think you can make sense of it as um, tracking relationships to goals and relationships to available information. And that seems to be a much less, um, com- you know, commits you to a, a lot less crazy um, attributions to, say, a six-month-old infant.
1: Okay, so you, um, I take it then that, um, I mean, Dennett is often or s- sometimes at least read as an anti-realist or uh, uh, instrumentalist um uh, w- whether that's right or not, I, I'm I'm not saying, but just uh, the idea that the intentional stance, you know, we can attribute these beliefs and desires, and we just do it's basically behavior tracking, um, uh, and that and then that's it. You know, there's there's no fact of the matter is often uh, is often interpreted as well. You know, that's it. There, it's it's just what we can know, and there is no sort of. Uh, there is no determinate mental state, you know, hidden, you know, causal, uh, causally efficacious state inside the head of the, you know, the father of the artist, for example. Um, you seem you seem to be departing from that particular interpretation of Dennett. But, is that correct?
0: Yeah. Well, uh, it's interesting that you uh, ask this. I'm, it's a great question. Um, I think the reason Dennett. A- I mean, Dennett is committed to that, and the reason is that he sees the intentional stance as an analysis of our full-blown concepts of belief and desire, and also as a methodology for doing cognitive science when we're trying to interpret things. So so that's what leads to the anti-realism, because if that's all that beliefs and desires are— um, then you know there, there's no fact of the matter as to uh, re- ultimately regarding which beliefs and desires we have. M- my my innovation in this book is to uh, kind of bracket that whole debate and give give people like Fodor their views uh, uh, accept their views um, when it comes to uh, the analysis of what beliefs and desires what the concepts of beliefs and desires are and even to scientific methodology. So just say maybe they're right. Cognitive science aims to Uncover the facts of the matter regarding the causally efficacious mental states um, that yield behavior, mm-hmm. and those causally efficacious mental states will be a lot like what the folk take beliefs and desires to be um, internal representational states uh, that are uh, have you know opacity um, and complex causal relationships to behavior I'll grant the anti Dinetians that, but that still leaves open the possibility that infants are Denedians. So rather than theorists, rather than Fodorians, rather than full-blown, you know, um, uh, uh, h- 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 speculators about the causal ideology of behavior, they are Denedians. So maybe Dennett's wrong about our mature concepts and about what science is doing, cognitive science is doing, but he still might be right about what infants are doing, right? And so, so the innovation here is that what uh, Ian Apperly calls system one mind reading, the primitive, automatic, um, uh, largely unconscious kind of mind reading that you see in looking tasks and that we'd likely share to some extent with with chimpanzees that at that point, we're not being theorists. We're not making a behavioral appearance, mental reality distinction. We're not postulating internal states with causal uh, control over behavior. We're just being Dinetians. We're trying to compress behavior into um, uh, into into these abstract categories, which I call goal and uh, information access, rather than belief and desire, to distinguish it from these more full-blown concepts. So, so I mean my my view to be compatible with the, the more sort of Fodorian understanding of what beliefs and desires are, and of what cognitive science aims to do. Um, even though I, I, I'm not committed either way there. Dennett might be right about that as well, or Fodor might be right. I don't really care about that. So so my view is actually compatible with there being determinate facts mm-hmm. about what your beliefs and desires are. They're just not the kind of facts that we find through quotidian interpretation, in everyday common sense interpretation. They're the kind of facts that you need to do cognitive science to find out about. But in everyday life, we don't need to s- settle the issue of um, what you really believe, what you really desire. All we need to settle is what um, the, the best way of interpreting the pattern of behavior is, right? So that's my point. My point is that we can be Dennetians about what infants can do and what adults do in their unreflective, everyday, seamless interactions, even if we're neutral about Denet, whether Dennett's right about our mature concepts of belief and desire and about what cognitive science is doing.
1: Okay, that that was very that help was very helpful to me. Um, so let's let us let us look at how you look at um, well, for example, language. Then, um, so the standard view, you know, language evolved to express thought, uh, something like that. Um, and your view is that language uh, evolved, and I'm I'm kind of you know shortening, paraphrasing, oversimplifying. Language evolved to enable us to commit. To behavior consistent with the claims we make and this is this is a very this requires a bit of, of unpacking so because um, you bring in uh, uh, people like you know like uh, Robert Brandom and and others um, so could you explain on your view now that we've sort of taken on board your reversal of the relationship between language and mind shaping and mind reading Um. What is what what did we evolve language for on your view? Could you explain that
0: yeah, so again, there are different components of language, uh, some of which are more puzzling than others so um i'm kind of taking on board uh, i think a, a common view It goes all the way back to derek bickerton 's ideas on this from the nineties where we have this uh, it starts with a kind of proto language which is agrammatical it's it just there are just um Terms for objects and terms for properties of those objects. And they can only be concatenated in, like, two, 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 word utterances. The order doesn't matter. So there's no grammar. There's no structural complexity. And this can be seen already in, in some uh, non-human primate species. You know, any signal which draws attention to an, an object and maybe says something about it, like... Um, you know, you can think of the vervets warning each other about various kinds of predators as a, a rudimentary version of this. The real puzzle about human language is how it got to have the structural grammatic complexity that it has, and um, and then eventually the sorts of thoughts that can be expressed st- with, a, with a, a system of that structural grammatic complexity. Because if you don't have structural grammatic complexity, if you don't have recursion, you can't really think about things which are um, Spatially, temporally displaced things that you've never seen, and that's really the semantic power of language. So the real question about language is um, the, the real puzzle is how it became structurally, grammatically complex. Now the received view of this, this sort of Pinker Bloom hypothesis, is that we already had structurally complex thought. We had we had a, 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 a recursive thought that enabled us to think about uh, spatiotemporally displaced objects. And so it would have been really adaptive to be able to share such thoughts. So we needed a language that was also uh, structurally complex. And I think that's what's implausible. I think there's very little evidence that um, animals without language have these kinds of thoughts that are just, you know, waiting to be expressed. Um, and so, and also there's a lot of evidence that a lot of our practical day-to-day um, coordination can be accomplished with much simpler communication systems. There's something called the basic variety um, studied by linguists Klein and Purdue, which they look at sort of merchant Marines from different countries and how they um, interact in, in, in ports um, and, and the kind of really rudimentary languages they use and how successful they are at coordinating without, structurally complex language. So it's always been a puzzle about human language, why it got so structurally complex. Why did we need a, 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 a system capable of expressing uh, things as abstract as you know the origin of the universe or various myths or, right. or, or, or other things? So this is Chomsky's puzzle about the evolution of language, really. Yes. Um, so my option to this is I noticed something. This is a, a suggestion of Darwin's um, uh, William Tecumseh-Fitch p- p- picks up on it. There's evidence that um, uh, bird signaling systems, bird song, can reach a lot of structural complexity, even though semantically they're very rudimentary. They're always com- uh, conveying the same message, which you know, on a, on a sexual selection theory is always basically mate with me. But there was, there was, a, there was pressure to make it more complex, The similar kind of pressure that gave us the peacock's feathers, that um, uh, birds capable of more complex song... We're just uh, better better mates or something like that. Well, I, I, uh, Tecumseh Fitch thinks there's something to this in his recent book, William Tecumseh Fitch, uh, the Language Evolution. And, and it's picking up on a suggestion of Darwin's that language is, is um, descended from a proto-linguistic kind of song-like ability. But I think there's no there's no evidence that the the the, the role this played in prehistoric human populations was was sexual. For one thing, there's no sexual dimorphism as there is in bird species. But typically, it's the males that are capable of these songs, not in the human species. There's no dimorphism there. Also, it's not linked to puberty. Human children um, uh, are capable of complex language um, far before. So it's probably not sexual. And my hypothesis is that it was had to do with cooperation, that in, in, to signal your abilities to cooperate and your reliability as a cooperative partner, perhaps you had to engage in some kind of, perhaps ritualized communicative behavior, including dance and song. And that was what drove the evolution of our capacity for complex communication. Um, that, you know, there would be this competition, between you know, the better you were at these complex rituals, the more reliable you were deemed, um, the better a cooperative partner you were deemed. And that was the pressure that led in this kind of arms race to increasingly uh, increasing capacities for complex communication. So right from the start, complex language was used to signal commitment to cooperative behaviors, right? And that's the idea I have. So Once that's on the scene, once you have language as this signaling device, this complex signaling device, um, I think after that happens, you you have all sorts of pressure, you know, to live up to your commitments, those commitments you signaled. And if you don't live up to them, you have to somehow, you know, excuse your behavior. And that's really where propositional attitude attribution comes in.
1: So it's, it's, uh, in, Providing excuses or reasons for what we do.
0: Justifying your behavior, yes. And uh, this, you know, here I'm picking up on a a whole other literature that begins with um, uh, Jerome Bruner's book, Acts of Meaning, where he sort of notices that a lot of, uh, propositional attitude attributions in everyday life, in such sort of sophisticated adult propositional attitude attributions, involve giving a story mm-hmm. that rationalizes or justifies an apparent deviation from a, a community norm in terms of um, beliefs and desires that make it seem rational. And there's some sort of empirical evidence for this. I mentioned in my final chapter this really fascinating study by Bertram Mall and co-authors from 2007, where they showed that um, adults, when they attribute beliefs and desires as opposed to external causes for someone's behavior, um, they will tend to, when they explain their own behavior, they'll, they'll, they'll attribute beliefs and desires, propositional attitudes. When they explain someone else's behavior, they'll attribute uh, things like, oh, they had a bad childhood, or you know, they're just lazy character traits that, that don't rationalize the behavior. And it turns out that it really doesn't matter how well you know the other person. It, even if it's a parent or someone who's intimate, you will still more likely to attribute to them this external factor rather than a rationalizing, justifying, propositional attitude. Um, uh, but when you're asked to make their, uh, someone else's behavior look good, uh, suddenly you attribute propositional attitudes towards them at, at the same rate as you would towards yourself. So it seems, that evidence seems to show that what we're really doing when we're attributing propositional attitudes is trying to make our behavior look good. Now, giving an excuse is just one example. They have a more general term for this called impression management. Mm. Sometimes the attribution of propositional attitudes might, might actually be, rather than exculpatory, it might be inculpatory. So if someone engages in a behavior that you think is terrible, you'll be more likely to say they did it intentionally, that they wanted to do it. Um, And this, I think, ties in with uh, Joshua Noby's work with the, um, you know, the vignettes where uh, when uh, the CEO does something uh, good to the environment by accident, we'll say it was unintentional. If they do something bad to the environment by accident, we'll say it was intentional. Again, I think we're using propositional attitudes there for a kind of normative, mind-shapey sort of function. We're trying to discourage a kind of behavior uh, by by saying it was intentional, so sometimes we'll use propositional attitudes to rescue our status um, uh, when it, when we're sort of at risk of, of having our mind shaped basically by normative sanction. Other times we'll use propositional attitude attribution to to help shape minds uh... to respect certain norms. But but it's not it's not principally to to predict what people will do to speculate about their internal causes. It's rather to sort of situate them in a space, a justificatory space, so to speak. So that that's the, the, um, the burden of the final chapter of the book is to argue for that.
1: Okay. Well, we are just about out of time. Um, uh, so that's probably a good place to kind of ask. Uh, well, I had wanted to ask about how coordination emerges on your view to kind of wrap everything up. So, uh, maybe you could say very briefly um, just uh, on your view um, how human cooperation evolved.
0: Yeah, well, cooperation and coordination are uh, related, but they're not exactly the same issue. So, one issue cooperation is how are we motivated to um, uh, uh, help each other out when the incentives seem to go against it, like mm. prisoner's dilemma situation. Coordination issue is even when the incentives are for cooperation. There are a number of, um, Options and we don't know what option the other person will pick. So how do we know which options we'll pick? So the classic example is an interrupted telephone conversation. We're both motivated to get back on the line, but if you call, if we call at the same time, the the line will be busy. If neither of us calls, we won't get reconnected. So how do we coordinate that that situation? Now, of course, n- um, mature populations do this with language, but the problem is has always been that language itself presupposes a solution to these coordination problems. That you know that we use words and similar ways. So how can this be done? And this appears to be a job for mind reading, um, but I argue in chapter 4 of my book that mind reading really won't sell, solve the problem, because you know, when we read each other's minds, all we learn is that the other person is trying to figure out what we're thinking, and, and you, you get caught in this kind of endless loop. So the idea is that coordination's solved because we um, well, there's this idea from the economist uh, Michael Baccarat Uh, wrote this book called Beyond Individual Choice about ten years ago. Actually, it was published posthumously and edited by some colleagues of his because he died while it was being written. Uh, But his idea is that a lot of these coordination problems require us to think of them not as uh, a problem facing two people trying to coordinate, but rather as a problem facing a plural subject. So, for example, there's a a classic game, it's called High-Low, if if we both pick high, we get the, the, the best reward. If we both pick low, we get a lower reward. If we pick the opposite, you pick high and I pick low, we get no reward. Well, how do I know what you're going to pick? If I see it as, as me trying to guess what you're going to do, all I'm going to know is that you're trying to guess what I'm going to do, and, and we never get uh, to a resolution. But for humans, this is a fairly trivial game. They both always pick high. How do they know that? Bacharach thinks is they think as a team rather than as two individuals. So we think, what would be the best... for for us if we if what what distribution what selections what pair of selections would be best for us and obviously it's high 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 gives the best overall uh distribution of of goals so if we think of problems as facing an us what um what back calls um kind of a we construal um a first person plural construal this can solve a lot of coordination problems so the question is how do we how do we Conceive of problems as as facing us rather than as a problem facing two individuals, and my idea is that it's through practices of mind shaping that we are educated to think of problems that way, and so you don 't have to go around wondering whether a person you meet will think of the problem as a, a problem facing an us uh, because as a matter of fact, most of us are raised to think that way about problems. And so that that's why mind shaping plays this really important role in coordination. There's also a story to tell about why it plays an, an important role in incentivizing cooperation. But I, I'm not going to get into it because we're low on time. But that's really the burden of chapter four in, in the book.
1: OK, so, um, yeah, we are out of time now, but I would like to slip in one last question. Where, where are you? Where are you going from here? Are you working on a, a follow-up book or on different projects all, all, uh, entirely?
0: I'm not really on a, on a follow-up book, but I am trying to spin off some ideas from this book into shorter projects. Um, the the stuff I just said about the intentional stance and, and how it can be treated as a model for what uh, we do when we're un- unreflectively um, predicting each other's behavior, even if it's not accurate as an analysis of full-blown belief desire, mm-hmm. that's a paper I'm working on now uh, for a um, uh, Feshrift for Daniel Dennett that's being edited by Bryce Huebner. Um, I'm also, I want to work the idea I have in the final chapter um, about sort of the evolutionary roots of full-blown propositional attitude attribution being impression management rather than theoretical explanation or prediction. Mm -hmm. I want to work that into a sort of reinterpretation of um, Sellers' myth of Jones. I want to argue Jones was not a theoretical scientist. He was more like an advocate for people uh, coming up with excuses for apparently deviant behavior. Um, So I've given that talk at a few places. Um, And I'm also working on a paper that has, uh, talks a little bit about self-interpretation. If if we accept the idea that a lot of the categories we use to interpret ourselves are, strictly speaking, inaccurate categories, they don't really describe what's going on in the brain, why might some self-interpretations be better than others? And I want to say the the relevant norm here isn't truth. We're not trying to track a fact about how our brain works. The relevant norm is something like, it's kind of like a program on a computer. When you try to install a program on a computer, you're not, uh, the program isn't there to describe what's going on in the computer. The program is something that you want the computer to do. And it's a good program if it gets the computer to do what you want in an efficient way. And so my idea is that our self-interpretations are, are kind of like that. They're, they're, they don't aim to describe what's happening in the brain. They're kind of aspirational. They, they're, they're programs that we ought to want to run so to speak. So that's the kind of third project I'm I'm working on now.
1: Great. Well um, thank you very much for for a wonderful conversation.
0: And thank you. I really enjoyed myself and thanks for this opportunity.
1: Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. You've been listening to my interview with Tad Sawitsky, Associate Professor of Philosophy and Co-Director of the Mind-Brain Evolution Cluster at the George Washington University. We've been talking about his new book, Mind Shaping, A New Framework for Understanding Human Social Cognition, which is just out from the MIT Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.